0: Well, last week we were retelling the stories of God's mighty works. We began with Psalm 106, which directed us toward praising the Lord. And we saw the shape of that praise is really just the psalm reciting all of the great things that God did for his people. And so we've been doing that for the past few weeks. Last week we spent some time in that In between time in your Bibles, that time we call, is often called the intertestamental period. So inter meaning, like in between, between, among, in between the testaments. And we talked about the time, that that period, um, which doesn't show up in most of our Bibles. And so most of us aren't very familiar with it. And so we often think that perhaps this didn't have much of an impact on Jesus and his world. And last week I talked about how wrong that is, that it had a deep and abiding impact, not, not only upon Jews, but even today. to today. We talked a, a bit about um, the, the Maccabees, which I learned just reminded my wife of friends. How many people also just reminded them of friends from last week? Anybody? No. All right. Thank you, Jack. One person, just dead air, just really dead air right now. Thank you. All right, we talked about how important the Maccabees, as this, as this group of people who, who liberated Israel were, that, that they became kind of the stories that, that were told. That they became so important, in fact, that, that during this period of time, when the Bible was translated from Hebrew into Greek, which became the Bible for the early church, that that Bible took on new books. In fact, four very important books, 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, which then after that you would get the Psalms. So you would read through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and the Chronicles. You would get the full scope of of God's moving through history. And then all of a sudden, now we have this new period, this new bit of history coming from this this section right here. And so these are the stories that Jesus and uh, his youth group... (laughs) his youth group would have been reading only they would not have read it as we read it because we read 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, 3rd, 4th and so on but they wouldn't have read it that way because they would have been thinking about David all the way through and they would have been reading the stories about how Israel failed but God is faithful and Israel failed but God is faithful. and All of the kings, they kind of messed it up and so it ends with this anticipation of a new Messiah, a new king, somebody who will rise up and free Israel and here you got the Maccabees. And so when they read it, they didn't read Maccabees, that's an English translation, right? They read the hammer, right? So, when Jesus opens up, he reads his Bible. He reads the hammer part one, the hammer part two, the hammer part three, the hammer final cut, right? I mean, that is what he is reading. These are stories about victory. They are stories about power. They are stories about God bringing his people freedom. They are stories about God's power through his people, God's power and love for his people, his faithfulness towards his people. Like, these are Jesus's. Stories. And so they shaped Jesus. They shaped his youth group. They shaped everyone that he met. They shaped the whole of the people. So when Jesus shows up on the scene preaching as he does, In Matthew, and in Mark, and in Luke, and in John, and he uses this phrase, the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, we are tempted to spiritualize that, and make that somewhere in the clouds, or somewhere that's going to come eventually, or some some other thing like that. But what they heard was God freeing their people. The kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. So when Jesus dives in, we actually in Luke get a little bit more out of this sermon that he is preaching, this early sermon. We actually get the quote that he pulls. So Jesus goes into the, temple, into the, um, into the synagogue and he, he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah and they find the space that, that Jesus wants. They're rolling and unrolling the scroll of Isaiah to get to chapter 61. Then it's read. Here we have it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me. Now this doesn't stand out to us necessarily. Maybe you grew up charismatic or something, but that might not stand out to you. But that word in English, if we translated that into Greek, would be Christ. If we translated that into Hebrew, it would be Messiah. So what is being said in this passage? The Spirit of God is anointing me, not just oil. You know they used to take the kings like David. You remember that famous scene? They bring Samuel goes and finds David, and he anoints his head with oil. They use oil to sort of set somebody apart and make them special. This person is now special. What this text is saying is that no longer are they using olive oil to make somebody special, but the presence and power of the living God has now fallen upon this figure, this person, in this quote from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To proclaim good news or gospel. Some of your Bibles will translate that gospel. To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And they were all prisoners. Recovery of sight to the blind. Remember that has to do with pure and worship. Reco- um, to set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to them. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed on him. Because this is a very peculiar passage to choose has a very messianic sound to it. You are about to say something important if this is your text. And if you were to read this in Greek, you would find it very difficult to read because Greek is intended to be as difficult to read as possible. (laughs) There were masochists. And so the more complicated you make a sentence in Greek, the better the writing is. And this in Greek is about as stark, it's like almost drops one for one. The eyes of everyone were fixed on Jesus. And this little word right here, fastened or fixed, is a word that only appears a couple of times in the New Testament. It always appears in relation to divine intervention. That is, somebody hears a message from God. Most particularly, it is used in reference to Moses who ascended to the mountain of Sinai and there met God face to face after a fashion. And his face was transformed so that when he walked down the mountain, he shone. He was like just altered and whatever it was freaked everyone out. And they said, cover that mug. They put a bag over his head for the rest of his life. This is the word that's used. The eyes of everyone are fixed on Jesus, like the eyes of everyone were fixed on Moses because they hear something coming from him that matters, something that is messianic, something that is transcendent, something that is saying God is now breaking into the world in a brand new living way in continuity with everything the prophets told us God would do. Here it is. And Jesus says controversially, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And for a moment, just one little verse in all of Luke. Everyone's happy. <laughs> you see that? All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came off him. Right? Because what's gracious that's happening here? We will be free. God is still on our side. This this moment, this, this, this prophecy is now going to happen. We are now going to take back our land. All of the things that were promised are now going to happen. And that's what Jesus is leaning into. That's what everyone is anticipating. They are expecting Jesus to say this. Or they're expecting Jesus to, to begin to press this forward. But when they heard this, they heard the hammer, right? They heard the hammer. In fact, they heard the hammer so much in this chapter of Luke that towards the end of that chapter in Luke, they try to make Jesus king. But Jesus rebuffs them and says, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. You couldn't get a more stark statement from Jesus about what he did or what he was here to do than this statement here. I came to proclaim good news. I came to proclaim the gospel. So it is imperative that if we want to know Jesus, we know what he means by this. And it just so happens that you don't have to listen to me for the next four minutes, because we are going to enter into a video that's another Bible project video that will give you kind of a a good explanation for what the Bible means and what Jesus means specifically as well when he uses this phrase, good news. So... If you
1: know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So, let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, beser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, beser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger, beser, that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the bessorah that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people, Israel, and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the Evangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around, sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants because the last are first and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel Becomes the best news that you've ever heard.
0: There's a line from that that I loved. Something happens when people tell the story about Jesus. I really like that. I I like the way that they put that. That we can be faithful to God simply by just telling the story. What little bit you know, you you don't have to have it all mapped out, you don't have to tell Matthew from 1 to 28, but the bits that you have, the bits that struck you, the bits that changed you, the bits that made you say, there's something really true to Jesus, and I know something a little bit more about God now, and so this is, I, I loved, I loved this, What does it mean to talk about the gospel? It means that we are now declaring that Jesus is king and that all the other kings and all the other loves and all the other allegiances and all the other things that we committed ourselves to somehow are tarnished and less interesting than this grand story about God who loves us so much that he's reaching out into the world to transform it and to make us different and to make us new. And the point of these sermons is to kind of continue to tell the story. So we tell the story of God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. We tell the story of God's faithfulness in the intertestamental time. We tell the story of God's faithfulness here, especially in Jesus. And it's so important that we tell the story again and again, those little bits that we know, because our imaginations are far more connected to our actions than we realize. I've had a great deal of pleasure in watching my two-year-old play Barbie's. Please, Barbie's more than, than Emery ever did. I particularly like it because Esri has taken on all of my aggressive characteristics. So Barbie time is intense in its love. Very strange if you listen to her talk like, honey, I love you. Like, it's just like really intense, you know. Um, or when they're disciplined, honey, I told you to quiet down. Like they're, That's me, like, being nice but still yelling. <laughs> somehow saying honey makes it nicer. Um, but what what she's doing, right, is she is reacting. Her imagination is being formed by the life she's experiencing. So she's telling the stories that she knows. And the only stories that she knows are the stories of her own life because she, she hasn't watched a thousand shows on Netflix like we all have, Right. And so her imagination, you see it in those little kids, their their stories, their stories informing their imagination, and their imagination forms back to their story. And I and my wife's parents are feeding into that in ways that are very important. And so what's the point of telling the story of Jesus over and over again? Why do you come Sunday morning to hear about the same book for 80 years of your life? Because telling the story over and over again is a chance to breathe new life into the room. That every chance that you have to tell about Jesus is a chance for Jesus to show up. Every story about Jesus is so touched with grace, isn't it? I mean, find a story about Jesus that's terrible. Remember that time that he fed 5,000 people? Remember that time when he healed all of those blind people and only one person came back to say thank you to Jesus and Jesus was like, I thought I healed 10 of you. Well, whatever, and goes on. I would have been so mad, right? You see, all of these stories, even... Remember this time when Jesus was on his way to die for our sins and stopped... On his way to heal this guy, and then this guy, and then this guy, and this girl, and this And all of his way, on his way to literally die for us. He's healing us the whole way. Even Jesus' bad press is kind of good. Like, like okay, the this, this story where, we all know this, right? Let he who is without sin cast the first Wait, even if you've never read the Bible before, you've probably heard that phrase. That phrase comes from Jesus because some people dragged a woman and threw her in front of him, accused her of being a prostitute, and said, can we kill her now? And Jesus says, he who is without sin cast the first stone, right? Now, why does he do that? Is it because Jesus is just a really nice guy, just wants to love everyone? no. He did that because these dudes were utilizing her. She was nothing to them. She was just a pawn in their patriarchal games. And Jesus is resisting the patriarchy. He is woke before woke was a thing, guys. You can find a story about Jesus. I promise you, you can find one. And every chance that you take to speak about Jesus, every chance that you get to say something, man, that reminds me of the time. Every time you do that, it's a chance to bring grace into the room. Because every story of Jesus is dripping with grace. Even the ones that don't seem very nice. Like the time, the many times he tells off the self-righteous snobs. We love that, don't we? Jesus is always pushing us toward recognizing God's transformative power. He is constantly calling us to recognize God's great love for us. He is constantly calling us to come to him and to kneel before him and to worship him. But he doesn't want a bunch of just service-performing kneelers. Isn't it interesting? God wants celebrators. He seems to want celebrators. He wants people who are, who are pumping his glory, who are saying his goodness, who are, who are always focused on life. I love that imagery that you had that crown where all of that death and all of that destruction feeding up, that we just kind of keep piling and piling and piling up. And as soon as it meets that crown of Jesus, it becomes fruit and life and verdancy and transformation. Everything about Jesus is calling us to see that. And that is why God is calling us to himself. You can find in Jesus something worth talking about I think of his self-giving love and how, how it's such a part of his being that we tell the stories so that we can take that on ourselves. So for instance, the story of the woman who, who touches him. She's got bleeding. We don't know what that means, exactly. Um, but if any of you who have been married, who have daughters, you know some of the problem endometriosis, who knows what she had, but whatever it was, I guarantee you it was painful. And whatever it was, it lasted for years. And whatever exactly the problem was, it made her socially unclean and religiously unclean. This woman thought not only could she not go other, to other people, but she could never go near God. And in the story, she's walking and she sees Jesus and she says, If I would just touch his coat, I could be healed. She knows that she can't touch other people. She knows that she shouldn't touch him. She knows that if she touches him, according to the Old Testament law, she not only is unclean, but she will make Jesus unclean. You realize that? If she touches Jesus according to the laws of Moses, she makes Jesus unclean. But what's left to risk? So she does the most forward thing a person could do in her station she reached out and touched his coat and was instantly healed now think about that for a second because jesus asks the question suddenly who touched me and the disciples look around you remember what they said does anybody remember he said they say everyone touched you man it's a crowd (laughs) everyone's touched you why aren't they all healed You all seem to have answers. I don't have. I don't know. But I do know that this woman threw herself at God, and God in his very being is so full of self-giving love that just the touch of the hem of his coat was enough to bring her new life. And what's interesting is if you're looking for the hammer, that story makes no sense. That story is irrelevant. The national hopes of Israel. That story is meaningless, and yet this is a story that we. In fact, some of the authors put this story on the way to a resurrection, and that's the story we stop off on. This woman who is at the outcast, the margins, the least important. She has nothing at all to offer Jesus, and she is in three of your four gospels. Because God is saying something through the very story itself that he is reaching out to everyone else that time, space, and society has forgotten. He is going not only to the top, but to the very bottom. And he starts there so that those of us who are somewhere in between recognize how deep God's love is. It is so deep it goes to the worst person in your imagination. And if you tell that story enough and you begin to believe it enough, you begin to believe that about that person too. And then you become an agent of grace. You become an agent of reconciliation. You become an agent that looks like Jesus because you see in Jesus the hope that this person so desperately needs and you can communicate that to them because now you see them not through human eyes, not as an enemy broken looking to destroy you, but as a person who is broken looking to destroy themselves and God is this great loving being who is saying to this person through you, I love them, I wanna save them, I'm using you to do it. So it matters what we say. It matters what stories we cling to. It matters how our imaginations are formed because it will shape us. And what we look like is what people see when they want to see Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom is everything and it begins with something so simple as this, telling one of the stories you know. And if you don't know a story, we'll give you a Bible. You've seen how often I tell stories up here. How often do I tell a story verbatim? <laughs> I don't think it's ever happened. I always throw John Wick in there. something. <laughs> kind of self- you don't have to tell the story by quoting it. You don't have to memorize it like that. Know the story and know how it impacted you and share that. You don't have to quote scripture. They don't need to know verbatim all of the different parts of Matthew. Tell the story in your own way. Make it your own because it has shaped you and made you who you are. So tell that story. That's what I loved as this video ended. is pointing us to recognize that, that Jesus is something different. And that when people heard him say, the servant is the greatest in the kingdom of God, and everyone puzzled saying, what in the world could that mean? What in the world could that mean? It means. It means that God Himself is helping us to reorient our way in the world, that the world that you were born in, the reality you were born in, the life you were born in, the philosophy of the people, everything we were born into, is working against what is actually good in the world, and so God is calling us to reckon with Jesus, because if we reckon with Jesus, we can actually see. God's ways, and hear God's thoughts. And we can find our direction home. But it begins with grace. It begins with us saying, yes, Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord. Buying into that with our whole selves. And God responding to that faith. I love the text as it's put in Colossians And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for each other, asking that all of us, he's speaking of the church, may be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good Work And increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all the powers according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." That is the critical moment that you reach in Jesus. Because up to Jesus, salvation was of the Jews. But Jesus acted in a way that we were hoping. He acted in a way that was consistent with the prophets. Isaiah, who said that the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And so there is a call to salvation. A call to see in Jesus forgiveness. To meet God, to have peace with God, and then to meet others and have peace with them. If you do not have peace with God, Jesus is the answer. If you do not have peace with others around you, Jesus is still the answer. And if you don't know him, I will be down here. I'm getting to know him. We try to make sure that there's uh, snafus in every service. Every church service, we plan at least three We encourage you. Some of you email us thinking that we don't do this on purpose. This is silly. We do this on purpose. We do this on purpose so you all will relax because you came in here thinking you needed to be perfect and we need you to know you're not. You're not. That's where grace fills the gap. So if you need prayer or you need Jesus, I will be here. Our elders will be there. We want to meet you. We want to introduce you to grace if you don't know it already. Let's sing to our God, our Savior.